0: It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. And if you've been wondering what 2020 is going to look like, well, we got a preview of it this week.
1: And obviously and importantly,
2: Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds.
0: It started on Sunday with a presidential tweet like so many things do. The tweet, directed at four minority congresswomen, suggested that they, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came. Of course, three of the four women were born in the United States. The fourth, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, is a naturalized citizen. All four were elected to Congress in 2018. On Monday, the women held a press conference. Sadly, this is not the first, nor will it be the last time we hear disgusting, bigoted language from the president. I encourage the American people and all of us to not take the bait. This country belongs to you. Mm -hmm. And it belongs to everyone. It's time for us to impeach this president. The drama has dominated the news cycle this week. On Tuesday, the House voted to condemn the president's attacks as racist. And on Wednesday, Congressman Al Green of Texas introduced an article of impeachment. —
2: Resolved that Donald John Trump,
0: president of the United States, is unfit to be president. — The resolution was killed in a vote 332 to 95. Later that evening, at a campaign rally in North Carolina with President Trump, this chant emerged. Now there's a lot to talk about here, and that's not to diminish the very real outrage, and in some cases hurt that many Americans have experienced and feel about this racist behavior. But here's my take on the politics. President Trump believes he won in 2016 because of, not in spite of, his rhetoric, divisiveness, and open hostility to minorities and immigrants. A lot of people love it. His instincts have been further rewarded by a GOP that has failed to criticize him or rein in his worst impulses.
1: Why don't you ask me, is he a racist?
0: That was my next question.
1: Okay, why don't you ask me?
0: Do you think that he is a racist?
1: Absolutely not.
0: It's easy to understand then why he believes he can win this way again. Of course, the 2018 election proved the limits of this strategy. And even as Trump closed out the 2018 campaign with attacks on the migrant caravan, Democrats picked up 40 seats in the House and won statewide races in battleground states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. They did so by not letting Trump dictate the terms of the debate. Yes, his tweet still drove the news cycle. But most of the Democrats running in these battleground districts and states stayed focused on one thing healthcare.
3: Healthcare. 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 They
0: didn't talk about impeachment or Russia, even the president himself. They didn't talk about abolishing ICE. Few were proactive about embracing Medicare for all. Instead, they repeated this mantra in every ad and media interview. So when I saw Congressman
4: Bishop smiling at the White House after voting to gut protections for pre-existing conditions, something inside me broke.
5: I support forcing insurance companies to cover all pre-existing conditions.
0: But Republicans in Congress keep voting to repeal Obamacare. Instead of fixing it, they would end protections for pre-existing conditions. Pre-existing medical condition. This year, though, Democrats aren't necessarily following that successful playbook. For one, it's harder to do this year. Back in 2018, the caravan crisis was theoretical. Today, the flood of refugees on the border is not. In 2018, Democrats didn't need to have their own plan for fixing this problem. They weren't in control of any part of government. Republicans were. Today, Democrats are in the majority in the House and are asking voters to put them in charge of the executive branch. Just being against what Trump is doing and what he stands for isn't enough. Democrats need to offer voters a vision and a plan to fix what's wrong. But 2018 also gave Democrats a reason to feel emboldened. Trump and Republicans attacked them ceaselessly for being supportive of open borders and socialist government programs, and it didn't work. Even so, that doesn't mean that these issues won't have resonance in 2020. Will voters still reject the GOP characterizations of Democrats as wild-eyed socialists and open border proponents, when many of them are supporting decriminalizing illegal border crossing, free college, and or the dissolution of the private insurance market in favor of a government-run Medicare-for-all health care system. This week, I talked to a couple of Democratic strategists with a long track record of helping candidates in battleground districts. One told me he expects to see the image from last month's Democratic debate of all the candidates raising their hands in support of providing undocumented immigrants health care insurance to make its way into attack ads next fall. Trump's rhetoric and policy on the border are unpopular, but so are these ones. We know that Trump lacks the discipline to keep the debate and the conversation on policy. He wants to make it personal. In 2018, Democrats proved they could make the case against Trump without having to defend their own policies that appealed to the base, but not a broader audience. Of course, it's also true that when Trump stokes racial resentment, it's really hard to stay, quote unquote, disciplined. His words hurt and they tear at the social fabric. Those with the most social privilege have the luxury of being able to detach from this debate. Overall, though, Trump can't make the 2020 election a referendum on the so-called squad, as he tried to do this week. But he can push the debate onto terrain where he's most comfortable, like immigration and culture wars, and get Democrats to make unforced errors. I know there are a lot of Democrats and progressives out there who disagree. Obsessing over the votes of suburban and white working-class swing voters who defected from Obama to Trump, they say, is a losing strategy. Every time Democrats have gone with the safe or establishment choice, think John Kerry in 2004 or Hillary Clinton in 2016, they've lost. When Democrats pick the careful candidate, they lose the support and energy of younger voters and voters of color. But here's how a Democratic strategist who's worked in all kinds of tough races sees it. This person told me, quote, there's nothing we can do to win suburban voters that will turn young people off. Trump is the best motivator. So there's a first take for you. We've been here before. Scandals come and go and are quickly forgotten. But after this week, we have to wonder if that will apply this time.
5: In one way, going back to normal is not really great for the president. He has persistently throughout his term been less well thought of than the economy much more divergent than most presidents.
0: That's Dave Weigel, national political reporter for The Washington Post. And more than almost any reporter in America, Dave is out in the field meeting with candidates and voters all across the country. So I wanted to get his take on the events of this week and hear how voters he's talked with on the campaign trail have been processing it all.
5: There is a sentiment that he is making the country worse in some ways but by the the actions he takes day to day. The kind of exhausting things. He says there's there's a idea that by drawing attention to Ilhan Omar and uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, he was doing something brilliant and uh, associating the rest of the Democratic Party with them. That assumes this is the only way he could have done that. <laughs> the only way he could have done that was in a five-day, six-day news cycle uh, concluding with him not taking responsibility when a crowd chance sent, sent her back. So I, I think even if you take the high-level strategic view that he was getting into a smart fight, I'm not sure the fight went that well for him. This seemed like it was harder than a couple of other incidents for Republicans to process, even if they, like Mark Meadows, um, like some personnel's in Fox News, even if they are resolute in defending almost everything he does.
0: You know— Right after the Democratic primary debate, the first debate in Miami, there was a lot of hand wringing from Democratic strategists I talked to, probably ones you talked to as well. And they said, look, you're you're handing Trump ammunition to make these charges that Democrats are socialists and support open borders. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is the case?
5: Yeah, well, I, I hear two schools of thought, I'd say one is larger among Democrats running for president, one is larger in Congress. So starting with mm-hmm. the second, there are a lot of Democrats whose electoral experience is winning a swing district or who maybe hold a safe district but are in a state that they worry could slip away. Uh, I, what, what is more prevalent, I find, with progressive Democrats and the Democrats running for president is a kind of happy cynicism, which is well, two things. Well, this is a guy who's going to accuse us of open borders, of wanting to destroy America, of being socialists, et cetera, et cetera, anyway. So there are people who are going to call us this anyway. Why not just be a little bit bold, excite our base, and uh, be ready to defend ourselves when he comes? And the other, more strategically, I think one advantage that Trump gives you that maybe a George Bush wouldn't or a or John McCain, if he was president, wasn't is that people don't trust him? I mean, he still has a, he has a very low level of public support on ter, in terms of whether you can trust what he says. And I feel as if if you are a moderate and you're reading Thomas Friedman and David Brooks warning you that the Democrats are too far left, that's one thing. If you see Donald Trump on TV saying it, then you're skeptical because you're skeptical of a lot of what he says. And what you've seen from a lot of these candidates, like uh, Bernie Sanders, like Julian Castro, like Elizabeth Warren is, no, you have an electorate that really does not want this guy to be president. If an electorate does not trust him, uh, you sound more convincing if you will come out with a bold position and, and can defend it than if you're hand- wringing your hands and responding to whatever Trump does.
0: When you are talking to voters, what are they looking for as they're standing, listening to a lot of these candidates in these early states?
5: Most Democrats, I, I, I don't get the sense this is sinking in again unless it is filtered through the media, unless they've been watching Morning Joe or reading Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and been told there's a problem or the Democratic Party is moving too far mm-hmm. left. Week to week, mm-hmm. I don't... I I think just the, the amounts of news that gets shot out at people, um, none of these litmus test news cycles have really become the dominant cycle of the week. And when I was in Iowa a few days ago asking people about that, uh, it really started for them with Trump, where they said, well... Something's wrong. <laughs> Trump's exploiting the law, so I don't know what that's about. But I like the idea of uh, taking the fight to him. So mm-hmm. they weren't panicking, saying, "Oh, oh my gosh, a swing voter somewhere might hear that and, and, and get get antsy." They're just so exhausted by Trump that they think anything where you're taking him on, at least, has the promise of changing the conversation about him. Now, you do find some people in the in the in these groups who are normal Democrats are a little bit nervous, um, but not that, not really. And the other the other factor that complicates it is if if you were looking at this on paper and saying, okay, everyone tells me that uh, Joe Biden is the most moderate candidate. He's the, he's holding the torch for the centrist, et cetera. Uh, except for this week's Medicare for all discussion, you wouldn't have much evidence of that because he's generally been agreeing with positions like letting undocumented immigrants get federal benefits. Uh, he flipped on the Hyde amendment. He he's been agreeing with people when they show up and they ask they be left wing. The only the only candidates who were really taking relish and pleasure in a, in attacking something on the left are Michael Bennett and John Delaney and Ava Klobuchar, who have not been terribly relevant so far in the primary.
0: Dave Weigel, thank you so much for your perspective and your insights. Yeah.
5: No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: For the rest of this hour, we're going to explore the generation gap with the goal of gaining a better understanding of how different generations really think about politics. Of course, we know there are plenty of other things in a person's life that impacts their political thinking, but the gap between the old and the young in this country is wide, and it's not just about the math. We're talking racially, politically, and culturally. So this week, my team talked to a bunch of people from different generations. Some are exactly what you'd expect and others, well, let's just say they might have been born in the wrong decade. I also brought in this guy to help guide us through it all.
1: My name is Paul Taylor. I'm the author of a book called The Next America, and I'm working on a new book about the generation younger than millennials.
0: Paul knows a thing or two about this stuff. So who are these generations?
1: Well, first of all, generations are not uh, not scientific. Uh, they're sort of confections. They're confections that people like us have created they're analytical tools that help us sort of understand who we are.
0: For the purposes of our conversation, we're going to focus on the last five. Duh.
1: The youngest are a group that I am uh, I would love to call the Mosaics. They're sort of maybe 22 and under, so most of them are teenagers.
5: My name is Sarav. I'm from New York. I am a part of Generation Z, and I was born in 1995.
1: Uh, They will be our first majority non-white generation, and they are by far our most progressive or liberal in terms of their political and social and cultural values.
5: I think one of the biggest definers of Gen Z is that we're all digitally native. We've grown up in a time with everyone having a cell phone, and just all the information we've ever wanted has been at our fingertips. I think climate has been one of the bigger topics that I've always had my mind on. Growing up in a period where climate has changed dramatically and there are more reports coming out of the environment being affected by our actions, I think that's been a primary driver in a lot of my political inclinations.
1: Next up are the millennial generation, very well-known, very big, made a big impact. They range in age from their early 20s to their late 30s.
4: My name is Dane Fisher. I'm a millennial born in 1985.
1: They've been in, in the electorate in the workforce now. They're the largest group in both of those places, and they're beginning to flex their political muscles.
4: Being a part of the millennial generation has greatly informed my views. It has given me a view on the world that says we're all connected, what I do matters. How I live my life matters, that I need to be conscious of my decisions and choices with the people around me.
1: They have had uh, a rough start economically. Many of them came of age a decade or so ago as the economy was cratering, 10% unemployment, uh, housing foreclosures, and all the rest.
4: And then there's the other side of it, which is that, you know, I have a ton of student debt. I live in a small town. My options are super limited. Although my idealism is big, it doesn't always match up.
1: Generation X. They range in age from uh, late 30s to early 50s.
3: My name is Jennifer Showmaker. I am Generation X, proudly born in 1972.
1: They came of age when the Reagan Revolution was in full cry. So while we think of a lot of generations uh, as being uh, liberal at the start and, and get conservative, that's not true of all generations. And it's not true of the uh, Xers. They started out actually pretty conservative. Accepted uh, the mantra of the Reagan years that government is not the solution, it's the problem. But they are, at least on cultural issues, they are more sympathetic to some of the views uh, and the changing norms uh, that the younger folks uh, have brought to our society.
3: I'm very liberal. I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. Seeing the excess of the 80s really kind of made me want to rein in certain things, um, knowing that there's government spending on things that to me really just don't make sense and they really aren't bettering the country as a whole. Um, I would rather see my taxes go towards someone who needs help paying their food bill or their rent than going towards say like the F-35 which to me is just the biggest waste of money we've ever done as a country.
1: generation older than them, it happens to be my generation, the baby boomers, been famous since uh, since we were born. Uh, We are demographically described by a huge spike in birth rates that began right after World War II and ended about 18 years later when the birth control pill came on the market. My name is J.C. Martin.
5: I am part of the baby boomer generation.
1: The boomers have always been defined by the noisier half of our generation, the counterculture half, you know, long-haired hippies, civil rights, women's rights, anti-Vietnam.
5: The baby boomer generation is quite diverse as far as points of view. You have people that are very conservative, people that are very liberal. People of my age grew up with Vietnam and I'm fairly certain that a whole lot of us have become quite skeptical of anything that the government, especially the federal government, tells us to do or how we should feel about something.
1: But they were not the whole generation. They were they were they were they were, they were part of it. And uh, the boomers, of no question, have become more conservative as they've gotten older.
2: Mr. And then
1: finally, the oldest generation, uh, mid-70s and older, is is known as the silent generation.
3: My name is Gail Gottlieb. I was born in 1943, which is surprisingly long ago. For some reason, I've been put into the silent generation.
1: They are creatures of the 50s in terms of coming of age.
3: I thought the 50s were the most boring decade in the world, uh, even though I was just a child then. The silent generation, I always felt, was just willing to take things as they were willing to persist in whatever it was they were doing, perhaps replicate their parents' life and lifestyles.
1: More conservative. They are our whitest generation, about 80% or more are white. But it, what's interesting is they've had a pretty good ride economically. They were in the workplace when the middle class was expanding in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Many of them still have old-fashioned pensions. Social Security has done for them what it was designed to do. If you go back to 80 or 90 years are our poorest age cohort in this country. We're older folks today. Older folks are are least likely to be poor. Uh, It's not to say they're all on easy street. They're not. And they are disoriented by all the demographic change going
3: on. I know we're supposed to get more conservative as we get older, but I flipped it around kind of like Benjamin Button. My first vote when I was 21 was for Barry Goldwater. I rapidly after that, came out against the Vietnam War, and I have been more on the radical side of politics ever since.
1: If you look at the country through a generational lens, we've never had a moment like this where young and old are more different from one another racially, demographically, politically, culturally.
0: I asked Paul Taylor how much these profound generational differences are really driven by race.
1: I would say it is a confluence of that racial difference, which is driven, has been driven by our modern immigration wave, but also layered on top of the racial difference are the ideological difference. So what I would say, and it's a, it's a broad statement, but it's broadly true, Older Americans tend to be white and conservative. Younger Americans tend to be brown and progressive. We never had a divide quite like that. And then you can throw in a few other aspects I think perhaps principally the impact of technology which is in the digital world which has uh, influenced everybody but it is the younger folks who are sort of the pioneers taking us to wherever that digital revolution will take us in terms of changes in social behaviors and cultural norms etc. But it's really a combination of race and ideology.
0: And so it just seems that For as long as I've been around, this debate over older generations versus younger has always been there, with older generations being more conservative, small c in the sense, let's not rock the boat too much, not big structural change, younger voters, let's shake up the system, they're more optimistic, they're more, they're ready to sort of turn the page. But is it different now than...
1: Well, let me challenge a part of your premise. Um, Hmm. Yes, yes, younger generations want to bring the next thing, and every generation finds its way uh, to do that. But if you look at it politically, it is not the case that we have had a kind of conservative, liberal divide that, you know, that runs along age lines. For most of the 1980s, the 1990s, and the early aughts, there was virtually no difference in the way young and old voted. Uh, the most dramatic example is the famous or infamous tie vote election of the year 2000, Bush versus Gore. That was a 50-50 election. It was 50-50 among voters under the age of 30. It was 50-50 among voters over the age of 60. There were a few elections <clears throat> in the 80s and 90s where actually older voters voted more for the Democratic mm-hmm. candidate than younger voters. So um, there, are, there are social and cultural features That are, I think, correct. The young are change agents. But politically, it is not always the case. So
0: what happened to change that dynamic?
1: Um, Generational turnover. And uh, the biggest part of that story is the modern immigration wave. Over the course of our 235-year history, more than 100 million people have immigrated to this country. There's no other country in the world that's received more than 15 million immigrants. We've been doing this a long time. We've done it in three great waves. Uh, The first two were in the mid-19th and early 20th century, and in those big waves, nine in ten of our immigrants were white Europeans. Immigration waves always produced political and social and economic backlashes. By the 1920s, we had had enough. We passed very restrictive immigration laws. Uh, They were in place throughout much of the 20th century. But by the mid-60s, uh, our middle class was expanding, our economy was expanding, the civil rights movement was in full cry, and we opened our borders back up. So since then, that, that's the beginning of the third and current immigration wave. Since then, more than 60 million—it's our biggest wave—more than 60 million newcomers have come since, since 1965. Uh, Nine in 10 of them are not white Europeans. They are Hispanics. They are Asians. They are Middle Easterners. They are Africans. They have changed our racial complexion, something that no previous immigration wave has done. So here we are now uh, in 2019 uh, in a country we have now, uh, you know, we're we're heading for a record share of our population who are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. And uh, they look different and they think different. The rest of my conversation with Paul Taylor in just a
0: moment. As the next generation continues to grow in numbers, there's a lot of talk about how they'll influence the political realm in the future. Like older generations, they're distrustful of institutions and cynical about politics. But there's also the possibility that post-Trump, our political institutions will be damaged and undermined in ways we've never seen before. So will that only further dissuade them from engaging in the process and, in essence, allow older generations to wield incredible political influence, even as those older folks' numbers diminish? For that, we'll have to wait and see. But there's one thing Paul says we can count on, the numbers.
1: Between 2016 and 2020, 16 million teenagers will turn 18 and be eligible to vote. And 10 million older Americans will no longer be eligible to vote because they will no longer be with us. So tick by tock, this generation moves in and eventually, one assumes, will start to assert its electoral muscle. The question is, how long is it going to take us to get to the long run? How bumpy is the ride going to be? And and how assertive will this rising generation be? and 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 there i think there is plenty of room for uncertainty and skepticism and one of the things you said is is certainly correct that a legacy of donald trump is going to be uh, the kind of you know the destruction of democratic norms that you need in order to convince people that voting is worth the candle but it's not if, if frankly it's not just it's not just donald trump that has promoted some of this uh, toxic uh, attitude toward political uh, institutions. I think a lot of these uh, teenagers are growing up in a world where the woke left is also promoting the notion that the government and society and politics are rigged against them. We're in a very angry stalemate. We have an, an embittered right. We have an aggrieved left. They disagree about everything else except the common view that American politics is rigged against them.
0: So what next and where does this generation want to go? Let's project 20, 30 years from now what this could look like.
1: Let's take uh, this week or next week or or the current uh, presidential primary process. What you have is a tension, uh, in my view, a healthy tension between the pragmatists within the Democratic Party who who, who want to do it through compromise because they understand that's the reality, and, uh, and the progressives who want to shoot for the moon. And if you just measure where the Democratic conversation, uh, the conversation within the Democratic Party has been, uh, where it was in 2016 and where it is today it has moved dramatically you know uh, uh, you know towards medicare for all towards mm-hmm. racial reparations you know uh, you you name it now i'm i don't believe these things are going to be enacted overnight but i do think this is the beginning of a move toward a bolder agenda that is likely uh, to work its way into the political process at some point if if what I talked about earlier, it comes to pass. this you know it's going to be not going to be too long from now that this generation, along with the slightly older brothers and sisters in the millennial generation, they just have the they have the electoral clout. Again, the math is inexorable, and I assume policies will follow. To me, as important and interesting a question is when we go through that transition, will we will we fight our fights with the same sort of toxic dysfunctional uh, character that has you know that we've seen for the last decade or so or might this generation be what i i personally believe the country desperately needs which is Uh, common humanity, repairer of the breach. We're all in this together. There is not just an e pluribus, but there is a unum. I don't know. If you're part of an outgroup that gets characterized the way they have been characterized by our president uh, for the last two and a half years, it's hard to believe that once you get to the center of power, uh, you exercise a kind of a broad uh, humanity. This rising generation has a lot of very attractive values. They are they believe in social justice. They have empathy for the underdog. We're in a moment, we haven't talked much about economics, but we're at a moment where the wealth I- and income inequalities are as great as they have ever been. A lot of people feel like uh, our democratic capitalist system needs to be saved from its, its periodic excesses. This is a moment where it needs to happen. And if this generation can marshal that, those values and do it in a smart, pragmatic way that says like, we're all in this together. I think we're lucky to have him.
0: Well, Taylor, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me.
1: My pleasure, Amy. I'm a big fan of yours.
0: Well, I'm a big fan of yours.
1: So there we go. It's mutual. Okay, now we've settled out. Uh,
2: Generation X. Our generation is... uh, I think a little bit jaded anyways, so uh, our generation tends to be very uh, skeptical of politicians in general all over the world. So.
0: It's millennial. I just grew up with people just saying like how important it is to vote. As a person of color, with immigrant parents, I think that that has just inclined me to be like more out there and be more knowledgeable
2: because not everyone has this right.
3: Gen Z. I mean it's weird for me, I, I don't remember
2: 9-11, so everything that I've experienced has been Kind of a post-9-11 world and also I've experienced, I've grown up in this kind of political experience which is extremely polarized and very over exaggerated.
4: I'm after the boomers, so whatever after the boomers is, I'm in the middle of the fifties. But I realize with my age that some of my kids 9-11 was before they were born and that blows me away.
1: Ever since I retired, I keep away from the news. I do fine art. When it comes time to elect an official, I do a lot of research. And I'm terribly uh, upset about what seems to be happening right across the board.
3: I don't know what generation. I mean, it's the older generation, I guess. I don't know, specifically. For me, it's more because of my race, actually. It's not because of the year I was born, though.
1: My politics? (sighs) America in trouble, fella.
3: (laughs) America in trouble.
0: All this talk of the generation gap isn't limited to the fight between Democrats and Republicans. These fissures are also apparent within the parties. 2008 and 2016, there was a significant generation gap, with younger voters overwhelmingly supporting Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders and older voters going with Hillary Clinton. So what does the Democratic Party electorate look like this year? And will we see the same divide? Well, it looks a lot more like the country
4: actually looks, which is to say getting much more diverse, getting younger...
0: That's Claire Malone, senior political writer at 5:38. I asked her about how the party's mix of generations is likely to influence who eventually wins the nomination. I think what's
4: interesting about the Democratic electorate, though, is there's a couple things. One, we always know that people who actually vote tend to skew a little bit older. But some interesting things have been happening over the past couple election cycles where the millennial generation and the Gen X generation and I guess a little bit of Gen Z, mm-hmm. those people are making up more and more of the electorate. So the past couple of elections have seen them really kind of showing their colors. And I think that we see those younger voters tending to be more liberal than the older moderate to conservative electorate that's kind of, you know, the steady eddy.
0: And yet when it comes to turnout, voters who are over the age of 45 make up at least, again, this last primary election, 60 percent. Yeah of the electorate. So how do you think that's influencing the way we should be handicapping or understanding how this race may play out?
4: Yeah, older voters are more consistent they they wield a lot of power, especially in early primary states. So mm-hmm. if you look at the big deciding states, so Iowa, the caucuses there, New Hampshire, Joe Biden, I should point out, people were a bit critical of his debate performances, he's still leading across all age groups, and in particular, voters over 65. So I think that that's something that we can't forget. There's a lot of buzz around younger progressive Democrats, new ideas, but Joe Biden is appealing to those older primary voters who, as you said, are the ones who turn out.
0: Young people now seem more engaged than ever. Their ideas and their policy positions have now become sort of basic staples on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. So what would it take, do you think, to have a significant younger influence? Are we going to know as we go into the election whether they are more engaged or is it going to be like a surprise?
4: (laughs) Well, I think one interesting thing to note is the 28 midterm elections, younger people turned out quite a bit more than they have um, in the past. And I think, you know, this is a primary election, obviously, that we're talking about here, the presidential primary, but it's so dominating of the news right now. I mean, I think politics is everywhere in, in American news, probably more so than it has been in a, in a very long time. So you might see more younger voters saying, I'm engaged. I want to vote. I want to pick a candidate. Um, so maybe we can look to that. You can see in some of these surveys here that, you know, there's not necessarily a clear leader with younger voters They tend to like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders as kind of a one-two switcheroo. That Either one can be their top choice in in different polls. But they're also really interested in Elizabeth Warren increasingly, which I think is interesting. And I think, you know, Sanders and Warren obviously represent more of those progressive. We want to break the mold of the system and rebuild it, which might appeal more to younger voters, especially, let's say, millennials who came of age in the post-2008 financial crash System. where talking about economic issues, talking about remaking systems is a very appealing thing. So I, I, I think we're in a little bit perhaps of new trod territory because mm-hmm. of the number of people running and because of the number of new ideas that we're putting out into the, the atmosphere.
0: But Claire, what does it say about the Democratic electorate that the candidate who actually is a millennial, Pete mm-hmm. Buttigieg, mm-hmm. is not getting... That level of support from young people that a man in his late 70s and a woman who's almost 70 are getting from young voters.
4: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I think perhaps the shortest answer is Pete Buttigieg is actually kind of working the more moderate lane of things. I mean, you know, Buttigieg is in some ways you could think of, you know, like an older person's idea of a young person, right? He, he sort of has that golden resume, super high achieving, very young mayor. He's running for president exactly at the youngest age he could do it. And I think, you know, we, we could see him surge ahead at some point. But I'll also say that I think his appeal is actually more to moderate voters, middle aged to older voters who might like his more, you know, middle of the road Political stances, but also might say, "Oh, well, he's a young guy, and we should we need generational change." And I would I should also point out that you know, Buttigieg has been struggling a bit with voters of color, and mm-hmm. he's he's done some he's made some efforts to sort of you know he's put out plans that sort of are aiming to appeal to voters of color. But younger voters tend to see important issues like racial equality. Violence, police violence, those are important issues to younger voters. And I think perhaps right off the bat, Buttigieg wasn't necessarily the standard bearer for those kinds of issues.
0: Claire, what do you think about the argument? And you hear it a lot in Democratic circles that if Democrats nominate a more traditional candidate, let's say in the mold of a Joe Biden, a more establishment candidate, they risk turning off younger voters, especially younger voters of color In the same way we saw in 2016, where the biggest drop off between 2012 and 2016 was African American millennials.
4: You know, it's interesting. I think you see in survey after survey, Democratic voters saying they are motivated to beat Trump, and that's that's why the electability debate has become such a big thing. And that's
0: across all generation, right? Yes, that is old, young, middle age. What? Okay.
4: The other thing is, you know, the VP pick could matter to people. Mm if you have let's say a white man at the top of the ticket if there's a woman of color in the ticket you know not just maybe like a Kamala Harris who by the way has really chafed against the idea that she is a VP candidate she's saying I'm running for president but what about someone like Stacey Abrams who was the first black female nominee for governor in in Georgia you know you could see people who are representative of the generational and racial change that 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 the Democrats want to be the standard bearers of. But, you know, it's a long election. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're sitting here in sweltering July of 2019, and there's a lot of stuff that could happen. But I do think Trump is sort of a powerful motivator for many, many Democrats.
0: Claire Malone, thank you for coming in and talking with me about all of this. Of course, my pleasure. Claire Malone is a senior political writer at 538. We heard earlier from Paul Taylor that some of the tension between generations is driven by race.
1: Older Americans tend to be white and conservative. Younger Americans tend to be brown and progressive. We never had a divide quite like that.
0: Well, it's not just anecdotal. Scholars looking at this divide have some pretty strong research to back this up.
1: Sure the
2: threshold generation gap is a concept that's been bouncing around now for about the last decade, and it has to do with the differing age structure of our population based on race. So, for example, in the United States right now, the median age, half older, half younger, for non-Hispanic whites is 43. For Asian Pacific Islanders, it's 36. For African Americans, 34. For Latinos in the United States, the median age is 28. 43 for whites, 28 for Latinos, it's 15 years. It's a generation gap.
0: That's Manuel Pastor, a professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California.
2: It's a generation gap that winds up having consequences because it's an older generation looking at a younger generation and not seeing itself.
0: Has your research found then if the racial generation gap between older white voters and younger people of color, is smaller, the policy differences are significant as well?
2: Well, the most significant thing we did in taking a look at this was try to take a look at the impact of the racial generation gap on public school spending per Mm -hmm. student. The larger the racial generation gap, the lower the spending on education. In essence, an older generation not making the investments in a younger generation. If you look at The state that's got the largest racial generation gap, the whitest old and the brownest young, that state is Arizona. Arizona, with its fractious politics around immigration and fights around ethnic studies in the schools. But perhaps most significantly, until the recent teacher strike, Arizona had the largest... Uh, cuts in per student spending over the eight years since the Great Recession. So this actually does have a consequence on public policy and public investment, as well as on our politics.
0: You also make this point in in an article of yours that the U.S. nationally is at the same racial generation gap that California was back in the 1990s.
2: The racial generation gap peaked in California in the early 1990s, and that was the era of Prop 187, the proposition that sought to strip uh, all sorts of services, including educational services, away from undocumented Californians. It was also an era in which we eliminated bilingual education and affirmative action. It was an area, an era riven with racial tension. We have definitely kind of gone on from that period of time. Our racial generation gap has closed. Our older generation looks more like our younger generation because, perhaps unsurprisingly, African-Americans and Latinos actually also age and become <laughs> part of the senior Uh, Population as well. And so you've seen things really dramatically turn around in California, one of the first states to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, We've got a funding formula for our schools that's called the local control funding formula. It hasn't just been the demography changing on its own, there's been a lot of political action to make that happen.
0: So is it possible at all to have that same kind of transformation that we saw in California on a national level when? Uh, people of color are distributed so unevenly throughout the country?
2: It's really about trying to figure out how to bridge communities and create opportunities for folks to find common ground and common concern. You know interestingly in the United States the places that seem to be the most freaked out about immigrants actually don't have a lot of them. Uh, The folks in states that have seen a lot of this change have eventually gotten comfortable with it. And it's not just a matter of the change happening and people getting comfortable, but what's the kind of political work we need to do to bring communities together? This isn't something that's just happening in California. Salt Lake City Metro, for example, is gonna become uh, majority people of color before the rest of the United States does. And Salt Lake City, and in fact Utah, have been managing a lot of that you know, pretty gracefully. Utah had uh, driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants about 11 years before California, and it had a DREAM Act in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants only one year after California. So it's not really just a question of the demographics or even of the particular kind of politics, but the ways in which civic leaders react and provide leadership to bring people together rather than take advantage of these changes to drive people apart.
0: I'd like to get your reaction then as you watched the events of this week unfold, which seem to fit right into everything that you're talking about, the sort of stoking of racial animus. If you don't like this country, the president says, then just get out. What did you make of all of this? And what do you think this is telling us about where we are as a country, where we're going to end up? in the immediate future and the longer-term
2: future? I think that we're looking at some really fundamental rifts in the United States right now, and the role of leaders is to help us get through changes and overcome our divisions and come together. And instead, what we've seen is a president that's really stoking the fires and trying to create even more division for short-term political gain. One of the things, it was really an ugly moment to see the president try to turn away the future by telling people who grew up in the United States or who were born in the United States to go back where they came from, which is really a racialized way of saying, America is not for you. America is a white nation. You can't be a part of it. And we've seen how this plays out politically in California. Republicans in the early 1990s thought that their route to being able to maintain power was through Prop 187, through eliminating affirmative action, through three strikes laws, through creating kind of a fear of the other as this change was taking place. And currently in California, there's Democratic supermajorities in both the state assembly and state senate, and there's not a single statewide office held Uh, by a Republican uh, office holder. So I'm hoping that some leaders wake up to this, wake up to the fact that they're really sort of committing harikari, uh, political suicide, uh, through this kind of a strategy. And just also understand that, you know, appealing to our worst impulses rather than appearing to the best part of who we are as Americans, even if it works in the short term, it cannot work in the long term. And the damage that will be done is long-lasting.
0: Manuel Pastor, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me today. Thank you. Manuel Pastor is a professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. That's all for us today. A moment to give some props to our team here at Politics with Amy Walter. Our producers are Amber Hall and Rob Gunther. Our sound designer and director is Jay Cowett. Our engineers are Debbie Daughtry and Vince Fairchild. Our digital editor is Polly Arungu. And Lee Hill is our acting executive producer. And of course, you can call us at any time, 877 8 Take, or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.